0: Good morning, church family. It's been a blessing already to be with one, or, one another in God's presence, and now we get to hear from the Lord in His Word. So if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. So this morning begins a very exciting adventure as we begin to cover the life of Joseph. The son of Jacob in the book of Genesis. And there are lots of familiar stories here. This story begins here in chapter 37, and the story of the life of Joseph will continue to the end of the book, chapter 50 of Genesis. And it's one of the longest and probably one of the most familiar narratives in the Bible, filled with lots of very familiar Bible stories. Uh, Like the one that we'll cover today, Joseph in the pit. And then Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph in uh, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And then ultimately, Joseph's rise to power in Egypt. um, And all that transpires with his family in that regard. The overriding theological theme of This part of Genesis, chapter 37 through 50, in the life of Joseph, is that of God's sovereignty working behind the scenes, even in the most dire of circumstances, as we'll see this morning. We will see God's hand of providence at work, guiding and directing the life of Joseph, the life of his brothers, his father, Even Pharaoh himself, manipulating circumstances in the lives of people and creation such that his sovereign and perfect plan and will comes about. Now these stories are uh, so familiar and so long. I want to do something a little bit different this morning and more than likely continue this kind of structure of preaching through the remainder of the book of Genesis. As we cover these long narratives, there really is no break in the story. It would be arbitrary to cut it in half. And so we're going to cover the whole chapter, we're going to continue to do that. Uh, but instead of reading the whole chapter and then going back and explaining verse by verse, what I want to do is explain it as we go. I want to explain the text as we read through it, section by section, and then leave time afterwards for interpretation and application. So before we dive in, let's go to the Word and thank Him for this and ask Him to speak to us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You so much for the privilege it's been already this morning to gather with Your children, our brothers and sisters that are with us in this room, that are with us downstairs, and that are with us online, even though they can't be here physically. We thank You, Father, For the privilege that it is to gather and worship you. And Father, we worship you in many ways when we gather. We worship through song. We worship through prayer. We worship through observing the Lord's Supper. And what a blessing that is, Father. To look to the elements of the Lord's Supper as we look back and see what you've done. As we look around and see what you're doing. And as we look forward to see what you are doing, what you're going to do and prepare us for. but Father, we also worship as we turn to your word, as we hold this book in our hands with grateful, thankful hearts that you have given us your word, your very breath, your inspired words that reveal to us who you are, And what your plan is. So Father, I pray humbly that you would speak through me this morning as we seek to unpack your word. Not just so that we will understand this story better. Not just so that we might have a keen and remarkable insight into this, what is for most of us a very familiar story. But Lord, so that beyond the head knowledge you might drive these truths into our soul and that we might, regardless of the circumstances that we might find ourselves, we might see your hand of providence at work, that you are still in control, that you are still working and guiding and controlling and that we can trust you in that because you're working for our good and your glory. May we see that in the life of Joseph, may we see that in the birth of a nation, and may we see that in our own lives as we look at Joseph against the backdrop of what you're doing in our lives today. We thank you for that, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's go to God's word. I want to begin in verses 2 through 4. Where we're going to see the father Jacob's favoritism. We're going to see Joseph, the young spoiled brat, really, and where we see his brother's hatred toward him rage. We're going to begin at verse 2 because as we said last week, verse 1 I think really belongs at the end of chapter 36. Chapter 36 covers the descendants and where Esau lived and verse 1 of chapter 37 covers where Jacob lived. He lived in the land of Canaan. But really the story of the life of Joseph begins in verse 2. So let's cover verses 2 through 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, Was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph 17 is a young man. He's hanging out with his brothers as they pasture the flock. And Moses tells us that Joseph brings a bad report back to his father. That phrase, a bad report, could be interpreted an evil report or slander so what this is is this 17-year-old brother, the 17 year old brother the the almost the youngest of them coming back and tattling on his brothers coming back and telling daddy what his brother we don't know what his brothers did but he's tattling on his brothers now we're told in the next verse why joseph would do such a thing and that's because he's daddy's favorite we're told in verse 3, now Israel, which is Jacob. Remember, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his, others, uh, of, his, of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he was. He wasn't the baby. You might say, wait a second, isn't Benjamin the baby of the family? He is. Benjamin is the youngest at this point. But Joseph is the oldest of Jacob's favorites. Wives, which is Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel more than any other of his wives. And so when Rachel died at the end of chapter 35, Joseph, uh, Jacob uh, begins to dote on her oldest son, which is Joseph. And so he begins to dote on Joseph. He's his favorite. And, and he dotes so much on him that he makes him a special garment. We're call, it's called there a, a robe of many colors, is what he calls it in verse 3. The Hebrew there is difficult to translate. It's either a robe of many colors or it's a robe with long sleeves. And who knows, it might be both. It might be a robe with lo- of many colors with long sleeves. But regardless of what it is, the point is, it really stands out. I mean, you can't miss it. Later, when they see Joseph coming, they know it's Joseph because you just can't miss that robe. But, but what Moses wants us to know here is that Joseph is singled out in this regard. None of the other brothers have anything like this. None of them have a robe like this from their father, but Joseph does. And to his brothers, this robe of Joseph, Joseph's means only one thing. Daddy loves him best. He's daddy's favorite. And so his brothers hate him for this. And and they were so burned up with jealousy, it says at the end of verse 4, that they can't even speak to him. They can't even speak peacefully to him. They hate him that much. Just like Jacob and Esau, as we saw in their life, now sibling rivalry is beginning to play out in the life of Joseph Joseph. And his brothers Jacob's children, so the hatred of joseph's brothers towards Joseph here is the is the conflict that's going to give rise to the tension in this story and, and and that their hatred and what they do because of their hatred causes the tension in this story to rise and and that will not come to resolution until we get to the end of this story of of Joseph's life, and we see him rise to power, and we subsequently see his brothers bowing down to him. So let's go on with our story in verses 5 through 11. In verses 5 through 11, we see two dreams that, uh, that Joseph has, and not only does he have the dreams, but he has to tell his brothers about them, of course. Look at verses 5 through 11. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf." His brother said to him, "Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us?" So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and told it to his brothers, and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him, and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying, in mind. So Joseph has these two dreams. Now, a couple of things to note about these dreams. One is that it's clear that God used dreams in the lives of the patriarchs in ways that he doesn't seem to use them today. He used dreams to reveal his will and his plans and his purposes. We saw it in his father Jacob We saw it in his grandfather, Isaac, and we saw it in his great-grandfather, Father Abraham. For many of the patriarchs, God chose to reveal himself and his will and his plans and his purposes through dreams. Now, I don't mean to discount the fact that, that God might, in fact, use dreams today to reveal something about what he's doing or what he's going to do. But the reality is that is not the primary means that he chooses to reveal himself and his will and his plans because today we have this. We have the word of God. We have scripture. We don't need dreams. God has revealed himself and his will, his plans, and his purposes to us. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph did not have God's word. And so in that day to the patriarchs, he often would reveal himself, as we've seen many times, through dreams and remind them of what he is doing and what he's going to do. And that's certainly what happens here with Joseph. These are dreams that God gives to him to reveal to him his plans for Joseph and for his family. Now, it's also interesting to note here, that the dreams in the story of Joseph from chapter 37 to chapter 50 always come in twos. We should note that. There are three different instances of dreams that we're told about. There are the dreams of Joseph here in chapter 37. There are the dreams of the the cupbearer and the baker in chapter 40. And then, of course, the dreams of Pharaoh himself that Joseph interprets in chapter 41. And in each instance, there are two of them. There's this doubling of the dreams. And this doubling of the dreams is is, is meant to bring emphasis to what the dreams mean. And they're also meant to inform us that the fulfillment of these dreams is close at hand, that you won't have to wait very long. That's what the idea behind this doubling of the dreams is meant to interpret to us. Now, the dreams themselves here are pretty straightforward. In the first one, uh, Joseph dreams that they're out gathering grain and they're, they're bundling the grain into sheaves. And, and in Joseph's dream, his bundle rises up above the bundles of his brothers and his brother's bundles of grain bow down to his bundle. Now, I submit to you that it's one thing to have a dream like that. It's quite another thing to tell it to the other's to whom your your uh, that will bow down to yours, and, and so clearly this dream is about his brothers one day bowing down to him, and so Joseph, the little uh, immature, precocious show off that he is, he just has to tell his brothers about this dream. He thinks it's a good idea to tell them, "Hey guys, guess what I dreamed about." I dream that one day you guys are going to bow down to me. Isn't that neat? So his brothers react just like you would think that they would react. And they hate him even more, we're told. The second dream is even more straightforward. In that one, the sun, which represents their father Jacob in in the dream. The moon, which represents his stepmother Leah because his natural mother Rachel had died. So, his, so the moon represented his stepmother Leah and the 11 stars represented his 11 brothers. And in his dream, both the sun and the moon and the 11 stars all bow down to Joseph. So what's the reaction to this? Well, his father rebukes him. He's like, really? Really? So both myself and mom and all of your brothers are going to bow down to you. So he rebukes him. But, but we also note at the, at the end of that little passage that it says that, that Jacob kept the saying in his mind. And there's something that makes Jacob remember, you know, not all dreams are from the Lord, but I seem to remember some dreams that the Lord spoke to me in. And there were some pretty far out dreams of the ladder and angels coming down and going, and maybe there's something to this. Let's just wait and see. So he keeps it in mind. So he rebukes him. And then we're told that his brothers become jealous of him. So there so first there's hatred. And then hatred gives birth to jealousy. And and we should be feeling here the tension between Joseph and his brothers begin to rise. This tension is building as his brother's hatred and jealousy toward him are growing. While young, naive, perhaps foolish little Joseph just stands there in his robe of many colors with long sleeves talking about all his dreams where his brothers are going to bow down to him. And we feel the tension growing because we know what Joseph doesn't know and that is that figuratively he is digging his own grave here. So now the setting of the narrative shifts in verse 12 to sometime later. So look at verses 12 through 14. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So his brothers go out to pasture the flock, and where's Joseph? Well, Joseph's at home. brothers are out working with the animals, putting in a hard day's work. Joseph's at home in the air conditioning in the Middle East. Again, we we see preferential treatment towards Joseph. He's daddy's favorite. And and of course, this would only serve to agitate his brother's anger and jealousy toward him. The tension is continuing to build. And, And note, where is it that his brothers are pasturing the flock? Near Shechem, right? That should be familiar to us. The last time we heard of the city of Shechem was in chapter 34, where the prince of Shechem, Shechem, defiled their sister, Dinah. And it was there that they sought revenge by killing all the males, all all, all of her brothers, including Joseph, killed all the males of that city in revenge for Dinah. And if you remember, Jacob said at the end of that story, you have made me a stench in the nostrils of the people of this land. And if they band together, they will attack me and they will destroy me. And so Jacob has good reason here to be concerned about his sons that are pasturing his flock near Shechem. And so he sends Joseph out to see how they're doing. So he comes to Shechem and what happens? Look at Verses 15 through 17. And a man found him. So this, this is Joseph. He, he goes, goes to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So it says that um, Joseph doesn't find his brothers. He gets to Shechem. They're not there. He starts looking for them. And this stranger, this man, pops up out of nowhere and just happens to find Joseph wandering in the fields, it says, as if he's lost, trying to find the sheep and and the herds and the flocks. And this stranger, this man, who providentially just comes upon Joseph in the middle of this field, also not only had providentially run across his brothers, but had providentially overheard a conversation where they said that they were going on to Dothan. Dothan, some 15, 20 miles north of Shechem, and so Joseph went after them, and at the end of verse 17, he finds them at Dothan. So what happens next? Verses 18 through 20. They saw him from afar, again, right? The robe of many colors, the long sleeves, the weird outfit that made him stand out from all the other brothers. They see him. It's easy to recognize Joseph coming from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And so now this this sinful Hatred and jealousy on the part of his brothers leads them to conspire to kill their brother. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. And so their plan is to murder their brother, this dreamer, as they call him, and then throw his body into a pit. Now, Reuben, who is the oldest of the brothers, he doesn't think this is a good idea. He bears in this story some sense of responsibility as the eldest, it seems, and he doesn't go along with this. In fact, he comes up with a different proposal. So look at verse 21 and 22. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Perhaps Reuben remembers a story about one of their ancestors, Cain, Who had murdered his brother Abel, and that the Lord had said to Cain, Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And so this doesn't sound very fun for Reuben, and so he comes up with a different proposal, a different plan. Guys, let's not shed any blood here, let's just throw him into this pit. But then we're told by Moses in this little parenthetical thought there, at the end of verse 22, we're told what his secret plan is not just to throw him in there, but his plan is to come back later, perhaps when the, the brothers aren't looking or when they're not around. Perhaps his plan is to come to sneak in and, and bring Joseph out and restore him to his father. So he's trying to save him. Now these pits that they're, gonna, that they're planning to throw him into, they are basically wells. They're cisterns that they, they were used to, to store uh, water reserves. And, and so when they're empty... Uh, they make for a great dungeon. Uh, apparently, they also make a great hiding place for dead bodies because that's the brother's plan, to kill him and then throw his dead body into one of these pits. Uh, but Reuben's plan is otherwise. Reuben's plan is to throw him into the pit and then come back later and rescue him and save him. Fortunately for Joseph, his brothers, Joseph's brothers providentially listen to Reuben and accept his proposal look at verses 23 and 24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And, and I want, what I want you to notice there is that Joseph is strangely silent throughout all of this. He He's... he's not saying a word. In fact, we won't hear a word from Joseph for the rest of the chapter. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But for now, what I I just want you to note is that this young, precocious teenager, who in verse 2 couldn't stop himself from tattling on his brothers, and in verses 5 through 11 just couldn't stop himself from babbling on about his dreams, is now silent. Not a peep, not a word. As his brothers strip him of his prized robe and throw him into a pit, we don't hear a sound from Joseph. How many of you have kids who, when their brother or sister would treat them like this, would just be silent? Wouldn't scream or kick or at least yell out, Mom, Dad, they're being mean to me. I know I wouldn't. I I would yell and scream even if my brothers did that to me today. And so this is odd. This is strange that, that Moses in this story would have Joseph being silent. It's almost as if Moses is trying to tell us something here. So hang on to that. We'll come back to it. Verse 25 through 28. Well, Then they sat down to eat, because apparently kidnapping your brother like, builds an appetite, and so they have lunch. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt." Now, Judah is not the eldest here, but in this story, and in, as the story continues to develop in the ensuing chapters, we see Judah kind of rise to the level of leadership among the remainder of the brothers. And Judah's plan here is to sell Joseph to these slave traders, these Ishmaelites or Midianites. We could use those words interchangeably. It's the same group of people. His plan is to sell them. Now, His motive in selling them to the slave traders is twofold. On on one hand, it seems as though it it, it looks like Judah has some some semblance of compassion or or maybe responsibility for his brother. Because he says, he he is our own brother, by the way. After all, he's our own flesh and blood. Can we really do this to our brother? And so there's some sense of responsibility that he has to not kill his brother. But on the other hand, we also see his motive is that of greed. I mean, if you're going to do something, you might as well get paid for it. And so he says, what profit is it if, we, if he's killed and, and, and we waste that opportunity to make some money? Here's some slave traders, let's sell them and let's at least get some cash out of this deal. And so as with Reuben's proposal, the brothers here providentially accept Judah's proposal and agree with his plan. They sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael, who are headed where? To Egypt. Interesting. They just happen to be heading to Egypt. Keep your finger here at chapter 37, turn back to uh, chapter 15 of Genesis. You recall uh, in chapter 15, that's the The famous covenant cutting ceremony where God has Abraham uh, cut the animals in two and and, and separate them. And then later God will pass through the, the carcasses of the animals through in the form of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch saying to Moses signifying to Moses I will keep my promises may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I do not keep my promises that famous covenant cutting ceremony that God does with Abraham well right in the middle of that whole thing God causes Abraham to fall into this deep dark sleep and then he says something to him look at verses 12 through 14 of Genesis 15 As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and dark, a great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, the nation where they're slaves for 400 years.' And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God was revealing to Abraham his plan for his descendants, that they would go down to this land, Egypt, and that they would be there for 400 years in slavery, and then God would bring them out after 400 years of slavery, and that they would have great possessions. And that's exactly what we see God enacting in chapter 37. Judah just happens to come up with this plan to sell them to these tra- slave traders that it just happened to be passing by, and these slave traders just happen to be making their way to Egypt, the location of the next chapter of God's unfolding plan for the nation of Israel. probably a good idea for us to just pause here for a moment and note that what often appears to be not often always what appear to be coincidence coincidences are never that they are in fact instead God's providence working out his plan more on this in just a moment because that's a major theme here but Moses wants us to see here that Judah just didn't happen to come up with this plan to sell Joseph to the slave traders. The slave traders didn't happen to just be walking, traveling by. They didn't just happen to be on their way to Egypt. God was in control of this whole thing. He was working in their lives. He was, he was providentially orchestrating the plans of his brothers and even the plans of these pagans, the Ishmaelites, in order to bring about his sovereign and perfect plan couple things to note here about Joseph again before we move on. First, we notice again he's still silent. Not a word from him. Throughout this entire lunch where they're discussing his fate and destiny, not a peep. As he's sold to the slave traders, we're not told that he says a word. He is completely silent. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Second, about Joseph... What's the price for Joseph's head as he is sold to the Midianites? 20 shekels of silver. Does that remind you of anyone else who was sold for pieces of silver? Jesus. Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Again, through the portrayal of Joseph's silence and his being sold for 20 pieces of silver, Moses is trying to tell us something. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So back to our story. Joseph's now in the custody of these slave traders, the Midianites, on the way down to Egypt. So now, back to the fields outside of Dothan. Let's look at the last few verses, 29 through the end of the chapter. So when Reuben returned to the pit. So so Reuben was not at lunch. He wasn't invited to the lunch that they had outside the pit. Somehow he was away. He had left them. Now, we don't know why, but he wasn't there. He wasn't privy to the plan that they made. He wasn't privy to the fact that they'd already sold him to the slave traders. So now he returns to the pit, and he's going to try to save Joseph now, as he had previously planned. And he saw that Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. This is a symbol of mourning and grieving. And he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? In other words, I'm going to have to give an answer to the father. I'm going to have to give an answer to our father, Jacob, because I'm the eldest. I'm responsible for Joseph here. What am I going to tell him? Where am I going to go? Well, then the rest of the brothers come up with this devious plan to trick the trickster, right? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors And brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. And mourned for his son many days. So now he's grieving for what he believes to be the death of his favorite son. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I will grieve the loss of Joseph for the rest of my life, he says. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so we come to the end of our first installment in the the story, in the life of Joseph. Jacob, the father, is mourning, deeply grieving the death of what he believes to be his favorite son. Joseph, having been betrayed by his own blood, his own brother's, kidnapped, thrown into a pit, sold to slave traders, and then as the chapter closes, he's in Egypt, and he gets sold to Potiphar, and the scene is set for chapter 2 of the life of Joseph that we'll cover in chapter 39. So what do we learn from this long and familiar narrative There are two takeaways, two main takeaways that I want us to make sure that we walk away with this morning. The first is that God's providence is always at work accomplishing his sovereign will. God's providence is always at work accomplishing his sovereign will. We said at the outset that the sovereignty of God is a major theme in this story, chapter 37 through 50. It's a major theme all throughout this story of the life of Joseph, and we're going to see glimpses of it from time to time, and I don't want us to miss any of those glimpses. The words sovereignty and providence sometimes are used interchangeably, and I sometimes might be guilty of that as well. They are similar, but I'm going to try not to use them interchangeably because there are subtle differences between them. At the risk of oversimplification, sovereignty refers to God's sovereign rule. His right as God, as ruler, to reign and to rule over the entire universe. So understood in that light, we could understand God's sovereignty as being one of his attributes, one of the attributes of God, that he is sovereign, helping us to understand who he is. He is a sovereign God and has the right to reign and rule. God's providence, on the other hand, is kind of like God's sovereignty in action. It's sovereignty with feet, with, with boots on. While well, God's sovereignty has to do with God's right to rule and reign in the universe, God's provinti- providence is him actually reigning and ruling over the universe. Gu- guiding and controlling and manipulating all of the molecules of the universe in order to bring about his perfect and sovereign plan and purpose. So while sovereignty is an attribute of God helping us to understand who he is, his providence is an activity of God helping us to understand what he does. And and what he does is he is working, he is moving, he is guiding, he is controlling, and as we said, manipulating the molecules of time and space in order to bring about his perfect and sovereign will and plan and purpose. And we see God's providence at work in this story and in this chapter. And I don't want us to miss any of it. It's desperately important for us to not miss God's providence when we see it. Why? Why is it so important for us to see the evidence of God's providence at work? Well, because, friend, if we can see the hand of God's providence at work in the lives of the patriarchs, and specifically Joseph, as we'll see him today and in the coming weeks, then perhaps we will notice God's hand of providence at work in our lives because he's always at work accomplishing his will. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for Joseph. He has a purpose for his family. He has a purpose for the nation. And he has a plan and a purpose for you and I. And in everything that happens to Joseph, God is working out his plan. Think about it. What, what is God's plan and purpose for Moses? Now, I'll let the cat out of the bag in case you don't know the end of the story. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the end of the story. Because it's important for us to see that so that, so that these intermediate stages in the life of Joseph will be seen not as just coincidence, not just as individual stories, but they're a part of the larger tapestry. They are the individual pieces of a larger puzzle that God from the beginning of time, has ordained to happen in Joseph and in his life and nation that will come after him. And so I want us to to, to see each of these things. So in the end, God causes Joseph to rise to power in Egypt. And through more dreams, he finds out that there's going to be a famine in the land And so he brings Joseph to power in Egypt to prepare Egypt for that famine by storing food in reserves. And Joseph's family then, including his brothers and his father, are then rescued from that famine, through that famine, by finding shelter in Egypt. And so they survive it. And so God providentially uses Joseph to save his family and to save Israel. And so in the end, even Joseph himself will admit that this is what God was doing all along. Listen to what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 45, much later in this story, as he's speaking with his brothers after it's found out what they had done to him and and, and how God had used him. Listen to what Joseph says to them, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me, God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land for two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So it was not you, brothers, who sent... What do you mean? They did send him there, right? Not according to Joseph. Over and above the individual acts of his brothers, for which they are responsible, Joseph, from his perspective, says, No, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And at the end of the book of Genesis, looking back on all of this, Joseph says... In chapter 50, verses 19 through 20, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There was an intention in the heart of his brothers, and it was evil, and it was sinful. But over against that, and encompassing that, is the intention of God. God had an intention. He wasn't just working, oh, okay, I guess Joseph's Joseph's brothers are going to do this bad thing. Let me see if I can make something good out of it. No, all along this was God's plan to bring about his perfect and sovereign will. According to Joseph's own words, God orchestrated everything that happened in his life in order that he might be used to save Israel. But you know what? I don't think Joseph was aware of that when he was sitting in the bottom of that pit. He wasn't aware of that when he was sold to the slave traders. He's probably wondering, why me, Lord? Why are bad things happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Or maybe he's wondering, Lord, Lord, are you there? And if you're there, do you care? Do you even care? Do you notice me? Why don't you save me from the pit? Joseph didn't have a clue what God's plans were for his life when he was sold to the slave traders. And then as they made their way from Canaan all the way down, that long journey to Egypt, He didn't have the foggiest idea that God was orchestrating all of this to lead him to become second in command in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, and that God would use him to end up saving his people. Church, the same is true for us today. Even in the most dire of circumstances, whatever they are in your life, even in the middle of that pit God's providence is at work accomplishing his sovereign plans. You may not have a clue what he's doing in the middle of it. But you can know that he is at work. Usually, usually he doesn't uh, tell us what he's doing. And what he's doing doesn't come into full focus until after the fact. And sometimes even then we're not given the full picture. Sometimes we have to wait until the Lord brings us home to fully appreciate and understand why He did what He did when He did it. And good thing is we can know in a general way what He's doing. Apostle Paul tells us that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We can know, maybe not the specifics of the situation and exactly how it's going to be fleshed out, but we can know that whatever God is doing, He's doing for our good and His glory. Our ultimate good, our ultimate joy and eternal happiness, and His ultimate glory and praise. That's what He's working towards. And what Moses wants us to see in this story is that... All these seemingly unrelated coincidences are not coincidences at all. But puzzle pieces in his sovereign plan for Joseph in Israel. Think about it. Joseph just happens to be his, uh, Jacob's favorite. So that he's at home and has to be sent. Jacob's favoritism of Joseph, which I would submit to you is probably sinful Jacob's favoritism of Joseph is likewise part of God's sovereign plan to elicit jealousy on the part of the brothers. And in turn, the the hatred and the jealousy of his brothers towards him, a sin for which they are responsible before God. It's part of God's plan, but they're the ones who sin. God doesn't sin. They sin, and they hate, and they're jealous. And they want to kill him. And they sell him to slave traders. And yet God uses that to cause them to sell him to the Midianites. And then we've already covered the coincidence that the Midianites just happened to be traveling by and happened to be on their way to Egypt, the next chapter of the nation of Israel, where it unfolds. The point is that these are not coincidences at all. Neither are the things that are happening in your life. They're not coincidences, friend. God's providence is always at work accomplishing his sovereign purposes. Think about Israel 400 years later, wandering in the wilderness, thinking back on this story as Moses tells it, with dwindling food resources and not a a water resource, a water source in sight. To them, Moses was saying, keep looking to Yahweh. Keep trusting in Yahweh, even in the midst of this tough circumstance that I have you in. Moses was telling them, the Lord is teaching us something through this. The Lord is shaping us through these circumstances somehow. But we know that he is still in control. We know that he is still at work. And he, he puts forward this account of Joseph's life to encourage them to not be discouraged, to not be dismayed that the Lord is still at work. So trust Him, Israel. Trust Him. Trust Him in the middle of the desert. Trust Him. And friends, that's the same message that God has for us today. The Lord is saying to us through this passage, I know it might seem like I'm absent in the middle of this pandemic as a virus rages throughout the world. And no, I know it, it might seem like um, I, I'm not in control, as social unrest seems to be carrying on all over the place. It, it might seem like I don't have a handle on things, but oh, if you only knew, I still hold the world in my hands. The earth still rotates on its axis at a perfect 23 23.5 degree tilt because that's where I'm holding it. The earth is still exactly 93 million miles away in perfect gravitational balance with the sun. Because that's where I hold it. And yes, I'm allowing the virus. And yes, I'm allowing this social unrest to happen. And it's all part of my plan that I'm working it out. And even if you, though you don't know, understand what my plan is and what my ultimate aim is in this. And by the way, you wouldn't be able to comprehend it if I did reveal it to you. You can trust me. Because I'm working it out for the good of my church and for my glory. And so he would tell us, Christian, Jesus follower, trust me. Trust me. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. Don't fear. Don't believe for a second that I don't care, but because I do. Don't believe for a second that I can't stop it. Because if that was my plan, I would. But my plan is better. My plan is better. So just keep trusting me. Keep trusting me. That's God's message to us through this passage. But there's yet something else that he's teaching us here, something else that we should see, and that is that we ought to see a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in this passage. We see Jesus here in this passage in two ways. First, we see it in the person of Joseph himself. Joseph foreshadows or prefigures Christ We've seen some of this already, and I've been alluding to this throughout our time this morning. We mentioned the silence of Joseph as his brothers strip him and throw him into a pit. And this reminds us of Jesus, who who didn't answer the high priest at his mock trial, who didn't, didn't give an answer to Pilate or to Herod. And we quoted from Isaiah 53 7 which is the prophecy of the suffering servant which says he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. Joseph's silence points to one who is coming points to Jesus the Christ but there's more here Joseph's brothers conspire to kill him, and Jesus's brothers, the the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, likewise conspire to kill him. Joseph's brothers sell him, as we noted, for 20 pieces of silver, and Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's brothers hand him over to Gentiles. Jesus's brothers hand him over to Gentiles. We could go on. The point here is that that in Joseph we see a prefiguring of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. It's not a perfect foreshadowing, that's what makes it a shadow. It's a shadow of the things to come. But it's pointing to one who is coming, who will crush the head of the serpent. So we see that in the person of Joseph, but we also see that in as a part of God's unfolding plan of redemption for sinners. Because what is God's ultimate plan in the life of Joseph? It's not just to save him and his family. It's also to save a nation. It's to save Israel. He was being used by God to save a nation. Because while they're in Egypt, that's exactly what they become. They become a nation. 430 years later, they come out of Egypt 2.5 million people strong. This is a nation that never would have existed if God had allowed them to stay in Canaan where there was a famine. And why did God want to use Joseph to save a nation? Friend, because it was through this nation that God would bring his son, a redeemer, a rescuer. The one from the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death forever who, for those who would come to him in faith and repentance So church, we ought to see Jesus in chapter 37. We ought to see the Christ as the ultimate, the ultimate aim of God's plan. Joseph in the pit, Joseph with the slave traders, Joseph in Egypt, and, and, and we'll continue on in this story. These were all individual threads in God's masterful tapestry of a plan of redemption for sinners like you and I. So friend, that's what our God does. He redeems. He rescues. If you've not placed your faith in him, then you will not be rescued. But I believe that perhaps God has you here to hear that good news that God worked in eternity past and he worked through the patriarchs and he worked through the life of Joseph to bring about his son, to show us who he is so that his children would turn to him in repentance and faith and be rescued from what they deserve and welcomed into his eternal kingdom. If you're here this morning and that's the desire of your heart, then I believe that God has you here so that you might place your faith in Christ alone. And so I beg of you on behalf of the Lord, come to Christ by faith this morning. Profess faith in him. Trust that what he did, he did for you. Turn from your sin and your self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over your life. He is building a nation still. He is building a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a church, a family. And as we celebrated earlier with the Lord's Supper, we get to long and look forward to the hope of that marriage supper one day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this word. What a blessing it is, Lord, to be able to open these pages and know that this is your breath. And that you have preserved it throughout the ages so that we can trust it. Father, we're so thankful for how we see you on the pages of Scripture. Even in a chapter like this that doesn't mention your name once, we see your thumbprints all over it. So we thank you so much, Father, for the overriding theme of this chapter and this whole story in the life of, Mo- of Joseph that you are providentially working today in my life and the lives of my brothers and sisters orchestrating lives, orchestrating events orchestrating circumstances, viruses even using and utilizing the sins of man To bring about your perfect plan. And that perfect plan, whatever it looks like one day, is for the good of those who love you and for your glory. And to that hope we cling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.